Paul or any of the, the apostles that they actually wrote on, that original manuscript does not exist. We do have many, many ancient copies and fragments of, uh, of manuscripts. In fact, uh, when you compare uh, the amount of copies and fragments of ancient manuscripts of, of the scriptures that we have to anything else from ancient history, it's just like off the charts. We've got a lot of information to work with uh, in terms of these copies and these fragments. And there's such a high degree of confidence then that we can, when we piece these things together, there's such a high degree of confidence that we can have about the original texts, about what, what the apostles actually did right now on that original parchment, uh, that honestly there's no reason to worry about the reliability or the, the clear message in the Bible. Biblical textual scholars have done a very good job answering questions and concerns about specific variations in the manuscripts. Uh, if you have questions about that whole idea, if you've got questions about any particular little variations in manuscripts that, uh, um, that concern you or about the reliability of any passage in particular, come talk to me. I'm sure there's actually an answer for it, whether I know it or not. Um, scholars have done good work on, on this kind of stuff. But, but this morning, it's all sort of introductory. Uh, since this passage that we arrive at in John chapter 8 is, is probably, actually I think it's probably a record of a true event, uh, but probably not apostolic scripture, because John didn't include it in his original gospel, we're going to go to a passage that shares its main theme, that's why we're going over Romans 7 and 8, which um, share the main theme. And we're going to use this story, at least briefly, we'll touch on it, as illustrative material uh, rather than preaching it as scripture itself. The, the story of the woman caught in, adult, in adultery and brought before Jesus is a beautiful picture of the extreme forgiveness that Jesus extends to sinners. And thankfully, that's a theme that we find repeated often and clearly throughout the Bible. We have no problem at all going to other parts of the scripture and finding this kind of thing. So that's what we're going to look at this morning in Romans 7 and 8. <clears throat> so uh, let me pray and we'll read the scripture. Father, we pray that you would give us a settled assurance about your word. Your word is hard to accept, not just because uh, we have questions about its origins, but uh, because it says so many difficult things about us that we're unwilling to hear. Your word, even though uh, your word is ultimately characterized by good news, it comes to us and it creates friction and we have a tendency to resist it because of who we are. We pray that because of who you are, that you would send your spirit now to make us able and willing to receive your word, to receive a good testimony about who you are and what you've done for us in the gospel. We pray for your help now as we consider your word in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so Romans 7, starting in verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
and down to verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long, and regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. So Paul says in Romans 7 there, wretched man that I am. It's pretty strong language. It's language coming from his gut. He has a hard time living with himself. Wretched man that I am. Psychologists and uh, self-help gurus will tell you that it is unhealthy for people to feel that way about themselves. It's, un it's unhealthy for you to say something like, wretched man that I am, wretched woman that I am. Psychologists and self-help gurus think that we should all have more positive self-talk in order to have clear consciences and feel better about ourselves, about who we are, about who I am. I feel better about myself, but the Apostle Paul has come to a place where he lives with a tension that's a near intolerable tension. It's a painful tension. He can hardly live with himself because he sins. He's, he's divided in, in himself. He's internally divided at some deep level. He says, with my mind, I serve the law of God with my flesh. I serve the law of sin. He's torn apart inside of himself, and he can't fix it. And that's never going to stop. And it makes it really hard to live that way. Uh, it's very important for us to understand that very basic point. That Paul is talking about himself as a Christian, yet someone who continues to sin and will continue to sin throughout the rest of his life. And he can't stop it. He wants to stop it. He wants to stop sinning. When he, in his clearest moments, in his best moments of communion with God, he understands that sin is just not something that he wants to do anymore, but he can't stop. He says that in Romans 7. You can't get away from it. You can't fix that problem. He wants to live with God. He wants to live for God. But he can't do that nearly as well as he would like to do. And he finds himself doing just the opposite all too frequently. Just living straight against God, living apart from God, forgetting God. <clears throat> he loves God, and he hates God. It's not just that he, he loves God, and then part of him is just kind of neutral or checked out about God. No, he loves God, 
And he hates God. And he acts out of that hatred every time he sins. He loves God in his spirit and with his mind, but he still has this nagging sin that lives in his flesh. We don't understand how that is possible, but it's, it's there. He has this nagging sin and nagging flesh that stands opposed to God. And it bothers him. It bothers him a lot. <clears throat> he's, he's disgusted at himself. And he's tormented in himself. I mean, that language, wretched man that I am. It's not an easy self-assessment that he's making. He's disgusted and he's tormented. And I find that to be a real tension that exists in the lives of believers. And the more mature Christians are, the more honest they are with themselves, the more they feel the pain of that tension along with Paul. The more they feel the pain of it. Wretched person that I am. So the first thing I want to do is assure you uh, that it really is normal to be frightened by our own capacities for sin. Not just to be... Uh, confused about it, but to be worried about it, to be frightened about our own capacities for sin, to distrust our own hearts and minds. What kind of position is that to live in, where you can't even trust your own heart or your own mind? Because you've still got sin in the flesh that's working against the Spirit in you. You say, I, I pledge allegiance to God, and I wish that I could stop sinning, but I can't. I can't control myself. I can't stop the sin that lives in me. To distrust, distrust our own hearts and minds, to be weighed down by guilt, to worry about what continuing sin means for the state of my soul. What does that say about me? I say I don't want to sin. I say I want to be in relationship with God, and yet at the same time I go ahead and sin. And I can't stop. What does that say about me? It's, uh, that's normal. That's normal. If you're familiar with thoughts and feelings along those lines, I want to assure you that's normal. And in a sense, as you grow as a believer, as you grow closer to God in relationship with God, we all imagine the Apostle Paul probably closer in some, in some sense to, to God, uh, more devoted to God, more spiritual, more holy, more sanctified, whatever, than we are, right? He still struggles with this. Uh, I think, actually, as you grow as a believer, it's normal for you to feel worse and worse about that tension in your life. Actually, that tension becomes more deeply concerning the more mature you become as a Christian. You're never going to stop sinning in this life. You're never going to escape it. It's always going to plague you. And the more that you grow in your relationship with God, the more you respond to God with actual love, and appreciation and gratitude and thanksgiving and praise, adoration and, and submission, the more you grow in your relationship with God and, and, and in your understanding of what it really means that you continue to sin, the worse you're going to feel about that. You're going to feel worse later in your Christian life than you do right now about this problem of continuing sin. You will shout louder tomorrow along with Paul, and you coming from a deeper place in your gut, wretched person that I am. So the solution, since you can't be rid of the problem in this life, the solution 
is not to, to suppress the tension. It's not to ignore the problem. It's not to just try to stop feeling bad. Like, I, I can't change this problem, so I'm just going to stop trying, I'm going to try to stop feeling bad about it. It's not that. That's not the solution. And ultimately, the solution isn't just about getting a clean conscience. Because a, a conscience basically is, is your own sort of internal self-diagnostic about there's something wrong with me. And, uh, and just flipping a switch inside of yourself, just cleansing your own conscience, this is not primarily a problem just in your mind. The fundamental problem, the fundamental worry, the, the fundamental concern of this tension that we live in as, as Christians who have a real relationship with God and yet can't stop sinning, that's not just an internal problem in your mind that you need to somehow figure out how to deal with and live with. Right? It's a relational problem. You need to know that God loves you. Not just feel good about yourself or stop feeling bad about yourself. You need to know that God loves you, that he forgives you, that he accepts you in spite of the continuing reality of sin in your life. In spite of how bad you feel about the sin that you continue to commit. That God loves you. You need more than just relief from an internal sense of guilt. Some abstract sense that I've done what's wrong and I feel bad about it. You need the assurance that your relationship with God has been established in such a way that even though you continue to actually deserve his condemnation, he does not condemn you for your sin, and he never will. That's what you need to know. You need a relational solution, because sin is a relational problem. You and I violate our relationship with God. That's what sin is. That's what unbelievers do. That's what believers do when we sin. When we rebel against God or we forget or ignore Him or walk apart from Him, we violate a relationship with Him. We're not just doing something abstractly good or bad with our lives. It's all about relationship with God and whether we're living with Him or living opposed to Him. Living with Him on His terms or living on our own terms apart from Him. It's a relational thing. That's what sin is. It's a relational problem. And we violate that relationship all the time. And a, a guilty conscience, just a guilty conscience, doesn't really describe what's wrong there. The problem is a broken relationship. That's, that's, what, uh, that's what our sin uh, deserves, actually, a broken relationship. The real consequence of our relational sin against God is that we deserve his condemnation. We, we deserve his rejection. We deserve to hear him pronounce a death sentence on us. We deserve him to withdraw his love from us. That's what we deserve. But the gospel says, because of Jesus Christ, we can know that God has decided, God has acted, and he has proclaimed, he's declared that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus and he will never condemn you. He will never withdraw his love from you. That's the assurance he wants you to have. That's what he's decided. That's what he's done. And that's what he's declared to you. God knows you better than you know yourself. He knows the capacities of your sinful heart. Feel as bad as you want to about what's going on inside your heart and your mind. Um, you're never going to plumb the depths of that. 
God has plumbed the depths of that. He knows what's, what's wrong with you. He knows the ways in which you sin against him. He knows the, the ways you deceive yourselves. He knows the self-justification that's a regular part of your life. He knows the ways that you avoid him. He knows all of it, and he still decided and acted and declared. He sent his son Jesus, his own beloved son, actually to die for your salvation, for your forgiveness, so that you could know you have a relationship with him that will never end. His impulse, because of who he is, this is because of who God is, that his impulse is to forgive you. Hard to believe, but because of who he is, his impulse is to provide for your reconciliation to him, to condemn sin, to condemn your sin, but without condemning and destroying you. He can do that. And he has done it. That was his plan. To condemn your sin without destroying you by condemning it once and for all at the cross of Jesus Christ. Where his own son was killed in your place. His forgiveness of our sin, his forgiveness of us, cost the life of his son. And he was willing to do it. It was his idea from the beginning. Even though we weren't even asking for it. Even though we wanted to have nothing to do with him at all. He was willing to do it. And he did it. His forgiveness absolutely accounts for all of your sinfulness. His forgiveness, what he's accomplished at the cross of Jesus Christ, accounts for all of your sin. Every inclination of your heart. Every warped thought in your mind. Every action. Every word that has been opposed to him relationally, past, present, or future, every sin has been accounted for through his forgiveness at the cross of Christ. And, and he says if you trust in Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation for you. Zero. Some of us struggle to believe that because we really feel the severity of our own sins. Really worried about it. Just imagine that this woman, that this woman that the, the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, John 8, uh, just imagine this woman caught in the act of adultery. They caught her in bed with a guy that's not her husband. In the act itself, dragged out of the bed and into the public square. That's the kind of exposure of our sin that causes people to commit suicide. Just to escape the shame, I can't live with this. I can't live with this condemnation. Or, or it causes us to harden up and shut down all of our spiritual sensitivities just to survive, just to be able to function in the world. And they dragged her in front of Jesus. The holy man, the holiest person who's ever lived, the one truly righteous and good man who ever walked the earth, they dragged her in front of him in order to tear her down. I mean, ultimately, actually, the text says this was a trap for Jesus. They didn't really care about throwing this woman under the bus. They just wanted to trick Jesus up, see how he would uh, react to a situation like this. Right? <clears throat> so ultimately, 
when people are accusing us, whether they're false accusations or true accusations, uh, ultimately their problem is not with us. Ultimately, someone's problem is with God when they feel like they must condemn you. And uh, that's, that's the case for these people. But they do drag her in front of Jesus in order to tear her down. She's not just expecting painful humiliation. She's expecting to be stoned to death. Because it's actually what God decreed is the proper punishment for her sin. It's not just the, the group, the collective, the society got together and decided, yeah, adultery deserves death by stoning. That's actually God's righteous law. That's what he says. And, and that's how serious her sin is. That's what we need to learn from that. We don't dictate how serious sin is. God dictates and tells us how serious our sin is, and really that's how serious any single one of our sins are. Death awaits us for our sin. Death awaited Adam and Eve because they ate a piece of fruit that they were told not to eat. Death awaits us for our sin, and that means everybody. The wages of sin is death. But Jesus didn't condemn this woman. As humiliated and terrified as she would be to be in this in this place of judgment, in public judgment, but but uh, the judgment of Jesus Christ as humiliating and exposing as as painful and terrifying as that would be, Jesus didn't condemn her. He didn't condemn her. In fact, the whole purpose of his coming into the world was to take her condemnation upon himself and to pay the just, righteous, biblical penalty for her sin according to God's decree to receive in her place God's rejection and uh, to receive in her place God's the death sentence and, and the withdrawal of God's love for this woman someone dragged out of bed in all the pain and shame and humiliation of that this woman in her sin, maybe you're really struggling to believe it, maybe you're so disgusted by your own sin and tormented in yourself over it, but our passage this morning from Romans 7 and Romans 8 is even clearer and more profound than what happened with this woman that was caught in adultery. Jesus doesn't condemn you. In Christ, God does not condemn you. Even though, like Paul, you're someone who's been rescued from a life of complete sin, and now you're in a place where you actually have a relationship with God, where in some sense you could say, I know better. I don't want to violate my relationship with God anymore. I love God. I want to submit to Him. I want to serve the law of God with my mind. You're a Christian who knows God, and yet you continue to sin in ways that deserve condemnation. Every day. John Scott says, sometimes... Our own heart condemns us, certainly tries to. And so do our critics, our detractors, our enemies, yes, and all the demons of hell, but their condemnations will all fail. Why? Because of Christ Jesus. It doesn't matter where the accusations come from. They can come from yourself, they can come from your enemies, they can come from Satan himself. It doesn't matter where the accusations come from or, or how true they are. That doesn't matter to me. 
you will never hear God condemn you, and that's what matters most. That's what matters most. You can throw out Paul's challenge to the whole universe. Who stands against me? Who accuses me? Who condemns me? Anybody? You can throw that challenge out to the whole universe with absolute confidence that the answer will never be God accuses you, God condemns you. That's never going to be the answer. And if God doesn't condemn you, but he forgives you and he accepts you always, then it really just doesn't matter who brings what charge against you. It just doesn't matter. Their opinion of you, your reputation in other people's sight, whether it's false accusations or true, doesn't matter. You should believe this. You should train yourself to believe this. You should train yourself to remember this. You can have assurance that God does not condemn you because of Jesus. And only because of Jesus. This whole thing is external to who you are and what you've done in his sight. Who Jesus is and what he has done for you. That's the only reason God doesn't condemn you. It isn't because you're really likable and God thinks you're just so cute and he wants to spend good time with you. It's not because you promise to try harder. It's not because your good deeds outweigh your bad ones. That is also ridiculous. It's not even funny. It's actually just insane. You can know God doesn't condemn you only because of Christ. It's because God sent him into the world for this very purpose to bear the condemnation you deserve at his cross, <clears throat> to justify you, to restore you, to make you right with God in a, in a right relationship through his sacrifice, and because out of love, Jesus was willing to do it and he did it. And that's the basis for knowing that there's no condemnation for you anymore. And as Paul writes, actually more than the fact that Christ died to forgive you, as, as critical and important and, and essential as that is, more than the fact that Christ died, he was raised from the dead by God. That's what it says in our passage. The resurrection is the clear declaration of God. This is the once and for all final word on the subject. That he is satisfied with his son's sacrifice in your place. He really has condemned sin without condemning you. That the basis for our justification was acceptable in his sight. It worked. Thumbs up. Resurrection of Jesus Christ. And even more so, Paul continues, Jesus not only died and was raised, right now he's at the right hand of God and he lives there forever to intercede for us. That's the purpose of his ongoing life, is to intercede for us, to be our mediator in God's presence in heaven right now on our behalf. His presence in heaven as our representative, as our stand-in, until we get there, his presence gives us the assurance that not only does God not condemn us, he actually fully receives us and we belong with him. We belong with him as much as Jesus belongs with him. That's the free gift of salvation, the final Christ. That's, that's what you can know because Jesus is in heaven right now in the place. God receives us. We belong with him, and that can never change 
even though every day you feel worse and worse about being a wretched person who can't stop saying your acceptance in heaven will never change. What we really need to know is that we have a relationship with God that lasts, that endures, in spite of my not deserving it yesterday or today or tomorrow. And the Apostle sums up this great chapter with the full assurance that absolutely nothing will separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Ever. Not your sin, even though you deserve condemnation. You could never deserve condemnation enough for God to change his mind about this. There's no condemnation for you in Christ. There is only a divine love that rests on you that will never change. Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter what you've done. And so you have divine warrant, biblical permission, and my strongest encouragement to remember that always because it will always be true. Celebrate it, proclaim it, share it with others. There's no condemnation for us in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you have to drive this into our hearts by your Holy Spirit. We can repeat it until we're blue in the face and still not be changed by this reality that there really is freedom from guilt, freedom from, from condemnation, freedom from all worry that you would reject us because of who we are and what we've done. There is freedom because of who you are and what you've done. We pray that uh, you would help us to be mindful of this, help this gospel come into our minds when we uh, feel this terrible tension in our lives and we cry out, wretched men that I am, wretched people that we are, who will deliver us? Uh, Jesus Christ will. He has delivered us once and for all. He's paid all of our, uh, the penalty for all of our sins at the cross. We pray that you would help us to remember that when we need it. We pray that you would help us to dwell on it and meditate on it so that we grow more deeply in love with you so we become more and more fixated on Jesus and uh, the good news of who he is. And we pray that you would help us to proclaim this to our friends, to our loved ones who do not yet know you. We pray that the, the essential proclamation of the gospel that comes from us, the essential witness that we bear, the testimony that we give, is that uh, those who flee to Christ for refuge, you do not condemn. And you never will. We pray that you would help us to be the people who Exalt this extreme forgiveness in this world for the sake of your kingdom. And we pray it in, in Jesus' name. Amen. As we prepare to come to the table, let's stand and confess our faith together using the Nicene Creed. <coughs> Church, what do you believe? We believe in one God, the Father Almighty. 